Yeah, 9, 9 p.m. record. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> now I've got the, the giggles. Welcome. Welcome to the Talking Poem Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Green. On each episode, I invite a poet, critic, or reader to bring in any poem they'd like to talk about for any reason at all, old or new, well-known or obscure. We'll talk about what excites us, what engages us, maybe what frustrates us, and we'll see how the poem and the conversation turn. We'll also have a little bit of silliness later because I can't help myself. On today's episode, I am stoked to talk with a poet, critic, painter, book artist, editor, mother, and many, many other things, Julie Phillips-Brown. Julie is the author of a collection of poems, The Adjacent Possible, and is currently completing a scholarly monograph, Tactual Poesis, Material Translation in Contemporary Women's Poetry. She's an associate professor of English at Virginia Military Institute. She's also the founding editor of House Mountain Review and is the only person I know with a poetry-related vanity license plate. Julie, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Charlie. That's so funny. <laughs> you clocked my license plate. Yeah, we. this is inside baseball for, for any listener, but we happened to run into each other at the same Subaru place in Cortland, New York, of all places. Because I don't think you have ever lived here or anything. So. No. <laughs> but I clocked, I clocked the vanity plate. It's not every day you see a poetry-related vanity plate. So you have brought in Mark Doty's elegiac poem, The Embrace, from his 1998 collection, Sweet Machine. Before you read the poem, do you want to preface it with anything? Yeah, I'll just say for readers who don't know, this poem, the, the context for it is sort of the wake of the AIDS epidemic in the 80s. And it's an elegy for Mark Doty's partner, Wally Roberts, who had passed. And I chose this poem because it's one of those poems that has continued to haunt me for the last 10, 15, 15 years or so. It used to be so bad every time I would try to teach it, I would have to read it at home first so that I could cry properly <laughs> for reading it in class. So I haven't read it aloud today. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> okay. We may have to have two takes here, but we'll see yeah, how it we'll goes. Two takes. All right. Go right ahead whenever you're ready. The Embrace. You weren't well or really ill yet either, just a little tired, your handsomeness tinged by grief or anticipation, which brought to your face a thoughtful, deepening grace. I didn't for a moment doubt you were dead. I knew that to be true still, even in the dream. You'd been out, at work maybe, having a good day, almost energetic. We seemed to be moving from some old house where we'd lived, boxes everywhere, things in disarray. That was the story of my dream. But even asleep, I was shocked out of the narrative by your face, the physical fact of your face. Inches from mine, smooth, shaven, loving, alert. Why so difficult remembering the actual look of you without a photograph, without strain. So when I saw your unguarded, reliable face, your unmistakable gaze opening all the warmth and clarity of you, warm brown tea, we held each other for the time the dream allowed. Bless you. You came back so I could see you once more plainly, so I could rest against you without thinking this happiness lessened anything. 
without thinking you were alive again. Oh, man, that is so good. Thank you. I love the way that you read that. So I often start with the why this poem question, but you sort of got at that Mm -hmm. the preface. So I guess I'll go ahead and ask. So you teach this to your students pretty Mm -hmm. routinely, and I'm kind of curious what you want them to do with this poem, how you want them to interact with it. I think it would depend on the class in which I'm teaching. But beyond just the content of the poem, I consider it a, a masterful poem in terms of its structure. I think it's a poem that can help young writers really understand how a line moves and what you want to do with enjambment or end stopping. So sometimes I'll point them to that second stanza that has two lines in a row that are completely end stopped, full end stop sentences as the first two lines of the second stanza. It happens in a moment in the poem where the poet is saying, you know, I didn't doubt for a moment you were dead. Yeah. And in some ways, the poem stops the, you know, for just a brief moment. And so you see that echo of the, the content and the form happening. In other places, you know, you get a really strong enjambment that happens from one line to another and also between stanzas in stanza three and four. But even asleep, I was shocked out of the narrative by your face the physical yeah. fact of your face. It's a beautiful, beautiful line break and really s- strengthened right by the stanzaic break that helps me understand just what a dissociative moment it is for this speaker to encounter the face of, of the lost beloved. Yeah, we get that. The I love that we go into that next stanza by your face, yeah. the physical fact of your face, which mm-hmm. is so... Interesting, because I know one of the things you want to talk about is like how elegies work and how you write about something absent. And one of the things that's so fascinating to me, one, you already kind of mentioned, there's this, the the rhythm of the poem is in a way calm and straightforward. And, you know, there's these regular four line stanzas and there's this tension between that and the sort of intensity of the scene, which Mm -hmm. I find really powerful. And then the other thing, which is how do you write about something that is gone how do you write about something Mm -hmm. that is not there and i'm curious what you thinking you know looking at this poem specifically how do you think about that like how do you write about how does someone write about the thing that is not there Mm -hmm. well i think one strategy that we see in the poem is insistence that happens through repetition right by your face the physical fact of your face. So when I saw your unguarded, reliable face, you know, I, so we hear it and we see it several times over. And I think we, we believe, you know, we, we put aside, we suspend the disbelief and the knowledge that we have temporarily, right? There's a willingness to see the face conjured. And then of course, there's the specificity of the details that there, right? Smooth, shaven, loving, alert, you know, so I think that that's certainly another strategy for for calling the face before us there's a strategy of proximity inches from mine you know there's a kind of like vibratory relation that happens there like you f- you feel the tension you feel the warmth i think between them and then i think in that penultimate stanza it teaches again something about the way that metaphor functions it's such a it's such a sort of strong metaphor or almost epithet. I don't know. I don't know what the the right term for it is, right? But all the warmth and clarity of you 
and then just this break, warm brown tea. You know, metaphors are they're metamorphic. You know, they transform. They're they're magical, right? They make they make it true. They make it real. And so, even if readers have never met, have never seen Wally Roberts, there are you know so many unmistakable physical facts that are in the poem that that bring that bring him back. And I think that's really you know to go back to your to your first question that why choose this poem and why it haunts me is because it's a poem that reveals to me like what the purpose of poetry is what it can do right that 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 the poem and in particular the elegiac poem is a is an act of resurrection and so you know even though i think it's the case that all language is elegiac in the sense of of it being belated there's always this sort of incommensurability that exists between world and word at the same time the elegy i think you know succeeds insofar as it allows for the time of the dream or in the case of the poem in the, for the time of the poem for the lost beloved to return we, sp- yeah. we spend time with them. And this this poem speaks to that capacity so well, so directly. And so when I when I first read it, I, th- I thought, here's the first poem that reflects back to me what I think poems are for. Wow, I love that. And I want to pick up on what you said about the elegy is an act of resurrection. And I think about this, you know, we have elegies. It's, it's one of our oldest poetic genres and forms. The resurrection is always going to be partial. There mm-hmm. is no bringing the entirety back. And what I love and find so fascinating about this poem is that he has a partial view. Like the memory is not complete. I love the why so difficult remembering the actual look of you without a photograph, without strain. And what's interesting is we get so little portrait of Wally Roberts here. There's not much that's concrete. There's the smooth shaven, but loving alert, the handsomeness, the thoughtful deepening grace, these are characteristics, but they're not necessarily details. And so I love that the poem is not going out of its way to describe him. And I think that this is a trope in a lot of elegies that it's not necessarily about describing the person as they were, but seeing them as they are seen in a way now, which is partial, you know, difficult remembering the actual look of you. And I love that about this this poem that that it's it's always partial and then i feel like when we get the clarity of warm brown tea i feel like that's the most specific physical thing Mm -hmm. and it gives us so much because of that yeah for sure i mean for me the the poem enacts a kind of a double vision you know so i'm thinking about peter Sachs and the english elegy where he writes about sort of the compensatory logic of elegy right that the poem in some ways supplants the lost beloved and performs a consolatory function for the bereaved poet. I think that Doty's poem is functioning in a way that sort of many modern and contemporary elegies function. And this is Jahan Ramazani's ideas. It's not my own, <laughs> but the idea that you would have an, uh, an anti-compensatory elegy, one mm-hmm. that sort of refuses to be satisfied, right. With sort of the, the artifice and the, the rituals of mourning that the elegy supplies. And instead, I think what you get in this poem is, as I said, a kind of double vision, right? Where there's an absolute awareness, even in the midst of the story, even in the midst of the narrative, that the, the loss is irrevocable. It has taken place. It, it doesn't really change anything. 
And at the same time, the speaker, the poet is able, you know, to, to entertain a moment of ease, a moment of grace. And I think to have those two things coexist side by side is what makes the poem so powerful. It's an in-between dream state that, again, I think she like shows like, you know, without thinking this happiness lessened anything. So there, like, there is happiness there, and it and and it doesn't detract from the memory and the pain, you know, that's being honored by the poem at the same time. I love that in that point about the in-between space because the logic of the poem and how in terms of how it's organized, I think is really brilliant that in the first stanza, we don't recognize that it's a dream. Mm -hmm. And so along with the speaker, it's that we, it's as if there's a moment where it's not quite recognized as a dream for the speaker or for us, you weren't really well or really ill yet either. And the yet I think places us in the reality in time and a sort of reality of time. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's a easy move that the poem doesn't make, which is to emphasize the shock of being pulled out of that. And instead that space of at the end, without thinking this happiness lessened anything without thinking you were alive again. Mm -hmm. And it, it puts us in that space of feeling the grief, but also that part of the grief is this moment of not peace it's hard i mean i don't feel like we have a name for what that moment is which is part of why mm -hmm. I, I love what you said about the poem earlier that this shows what a poem can do is it it gives us a feeling that in a way is unnameable mm -hmm. that it's this part of grief that is not the shock of it not the sort of gnawing pain of it and not something like acceptance it, it in a way the poem doesn't fit into the doesn't fit into the the five stages of grief there's mm -hmm. there's something really like all this in-between state like you described and i feel like that's one of the rich surprising things about the poem oh i wanted to come back to that idea too about about memory i guess and we were talking about that those lines why so difficult remembering the actual look of you without a photograph without strain and and how much recrimination there is in those lines you know like there's a there's a real disappointment with the failures of conscious memory so i was thinking if there is something consolatory about this poem maybe it's that it supplies the possibility of like a different kind of memory like a memory that exists in the body you know somewhere well well beyond our ordinary access and that, and that that's where the lost beloved might still live. You know, it, beco it becomes clear that the poet is able to conjure this image, you know, but only only in that dream space. And I, I do think that there's a sort of a larger analogy being drawn here, right, between the space of a dream and the space of a poem and what both of those spaces can furnish for our memory and our imagination. That's great because it's memory and dream are related, but... <laughs> The ways in which they're interrelated sort of point to the limits of both. Like if memory, I think for at least for me, often works just by accident. It's whatever pops into my memory when I try to remember something. I really can only remember it if I'm writing down details of it. It's a bit jumbled. It's a bit staticky and messy. And I think that that's part of what he's getting at here. But the dream gives him the you in a new form. And I think maybe that's right. what's so touching about it is that it's not memory. It is as if he's there, but in a, a new. 
yeah, you you came back. Bless you. You came back. I think, you know, I think Dodi says somewhere that that this poem was the gift of a dream. But there's there's also the implication that the you, that Wally is somewhere and can and can and does return, right? And that it's an act of volition. It's an act of love. And I think there's sort of like the implication of a, a belief system at work there, you know, about about potentially the afterlife and the way that dreams and and poems function, you know, to facilitate uh, otherwise impossible connections. And going back to your question about teaching, the other thing that this poem teaches that I think is connected with this idea is the role of pronouns in a poem and how how well orchestrated I think the pronouns are. You have in the in the opening and subsequent stanzas, you have a you and you have an I. And you have this really intimate space of the poem, this intimate space of lyric address, which, you know, some people, some critics have described the reader as sort of like a, a listener right, who, who listens in on this exchange. And whether we think of ourselves as interlopers or not, I suppose it's up to us. But but the I and the you are sort of, you know, separate for a while there, right? There's the I, there's the you. And then in, I think, key moments, right? A, a we, a first-person plural pronoun will emerge, right? That sort of brings that I and that you together. And so this is a poem that I think can help us track the question of who is the I, who is the you, and how, how close or how distant are they from one another at any given moment in the poem as mm-hmm. a way of, of tracing relation. You know, and I, I think it's so critical, particularly that that penultimate stanza where the where the we shows up again. We held each other for the time the dream allowed you and i held each other for the time the dream allowed just would not be the same line <laughs> no, right wouldn't, yeah wouldn't cut it you know exactly the the um, you is there in the first stanza the i emerges in the second in the third we get the we and then in the last stanza i love the bless you bless you, you came back so i could see you and that's just a complete line right mm-hmm. there and so they're merged in that moment you came back so i could see you Mm-hmm. And it's just really, really sweet and powerful that it's ultimately temporary, mm-hmm. that that the elegy reminds us and emphasizes what's temporary about it. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask, though, about the dream itself. Mm-hmm. The We seem to be moving from some old house where we live, boxes everywhere, things in disarray. That was the story of my dream and then goes on to shift to the shock, but I'm curious about the the substance of the dream itself and the fact that it's moving. I'm just curious to hear you talk about that, what you make of it. No, I don't know. I I think probably in some ways it's just, you know, literally that's the content of the dream. But at the same time, you know, it it makes me think of, you know, a speaker, a poet. I think it's hard to dis- <laughs> it's hard. I I'm switching back and forth between those two terms. I, I don't I don't want to elide them too much, though. But it, it makes me think about when this poem is being written and the occasion of the poem and what it might mean to be the surviving partner in a relationship. And how do you how do you continue to survive? Right? How do you transition? There are things that literally happen. We we box up our memories. We move house. We move on. And even though in the dream they're moving together. You know, it feel it feels like, especially in that that first line, as you were alluding to, right? You weren't well or really ill yet either. 
there's definitely a sense of a, a scope of time. We we have a sense, right, of a speaker who's able to to look back and also to anticipate what's to come. They've they've lived and survived through all of it, and I imagine have come to a point where they're dealing with the the physical facts, the physical effects of someone's life, and even the even the stanzas being quatrains, like you had said, a quatrain has a sort of stead kind of structure to it you know it, it, to me it feels stasis it has you know four four nice walls for each room and so in some ways this is a very contained house like poem you know with lots of sort of neat neat rooms neat boxes and yet all of these things that are trying to sort of escape from it at this at the same time so i, I feel like there's just a real tension there it doesn't seem to me coincidence that you would have a speaker a poet in the act of trying to box things up, of trying to to sum up a life together, and in the process of that, finding things in disarray, in the process of that, finding that the the lover returns, right, and utterly disrupts that that sort of like neat codification of memory that might be taking place. Right. Yeah. And I hadn't thought about this until you were talking about it, emphasizing the idea of the stanza as a room, and I I imagine many. Some listeners, I have no idea, would know that stanza comes from the Italian word mm-hmm. from ro- for room. But what I'm thinking of is there is this idea of like the memory palace as the, as as the method of loci that you you place your memories in certain rooms so it's easier mm-hmm. to recall them. And this is a poem that's not that he has not been able to do that. He hasn't been able to set them in in very neat spaces. The other thing I find myself thinking about everything that you say about why moving makes a ton of sense. And the other thing on a just basic gut level, I hate moving. Every experience I've had of moving is unpleasant and yeah, it's incredibly an enormous pain. Yeah, exactly. And it's a very mundane in a way kind of memory. And you mentioned that, you know, this may actually be the situation of the dream, which maybe as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't matter if it is. It's just mm-hmm. in the way it works in the poem. The fact that is something so mundane and even irritating as that it's not this Mm -hmm. idealized memory and it's not even emphasizing the irritation of it it's just that it is this specific kind of mundane scene where it's such a delight to get to see you again the you of the poem again Mm -hmm. so and it comes directly out of a life lived together i think yeah yeah I know I know I read this poem when I was in college. I've been in college forever so I should specify when I was an undergrad because <laughs> I remember Mark Doty was one of the poets that I was introduced to really early on. I know that I know for a fact that the first Mark Doty poem I read was Brilliance because I was assigned it in the class and I was just kind of mm-hmm. blown away. And this is around the time when when Sweet Machine came out, Atlantis had been out and I remember sort of just gobbling those books up because, you know, teenager, late teens, early 20s, realizing, oh, poems can be this. Mm-hmm. And but I haven't thought about it in so long. And it's just I can't imagine that I I had the kind of reaction then that I'm having to it now. Do you remember when you first encountered this poem? You mentioned thinking about it for like 10, 15 years. I, you know, I think I was looking for a poem that would teach well. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I also remember, maybe everyone has their the first time I encountered Mark Doty's story. <laughs> but I was in high school, and I was at the, the Pennsylvania Governor's School for Fine Arts. It was like a 
program in the summer for talented youth. I'm putting that in scare quotes for everyone who can't see me um, <laughs> across the state of Pennsylvania. And I was rejected for poetry, but I was accepted for painting. But I would always go to the poetry readings that were there. And there was this one uh, young poet who, you should probably cut this out, but I'll still tell you the story. He would <laughs> absolutely scream his poems into the microphone. And then oh. when prompted to read someone else, else's poems he would read mark Doty's poems but in the same screaming manner he was screaming sweet machine the poems from sweet machine into the mic i don't know how to tell this story in a way that doesn't sound jerky really but like <laughs> just like I re- you're not including any identifying characteristics and i feel like it would be a nearly universal agreement that you shouldn't be screaming a poem Especially not Mark Doty. Henry Rollins isn't here, so he can't tell us you can scream whatever you want. Uh, it just seems like an odd choice. So I'll, what I will say is the performance didn't match what one would expect that was, you know, from what was on the page. But yeah. I remember seeing the book. I remember seeing his performance and being very impressed and thinking, I need to buy that book. And I got the book. I thought, I need to buy that book because then I'll be a real poet. <laughs> so, yeah. So I bought the book and sat with it. and I began to read the poems and I was like, where's the screaming? These, these aren't screaming poems. I, I don't know what these are. And I just, it absolutely broke my brain for a minute mm-hmm. while I tried to figure out, well, what, what were these poems? And so I really actually wrestled with the poems in Sweet Machine for a while. And it was sort of my litmus test for, could I be a real poet? Could I figure these poems out? That's incredible that I can't imagine someone reading Mark Doty and thinking this needs to be screamed. Two quick side notes that are related and then see if you have any last things you want to mention about the poem and then we can move to we can move to the games. One is that I went to the summer program in Arkansas that was Arkansas Governor's School. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go for English and did not get in for English and went for theater, nice. which is surprising for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that I feel like there were over a hundred people there in the English program and there were 21 in the theater program. Mm -hmm. It was just so much more selective. And I remember being so disappointed and I had a great, as good a time as I could have had as like a angsty rising junior could have had. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So the other thing, are you familiar with screaming Jay Hawkins? No. (laughs) Okay. Screaming Jay Hawkins, he's a kind of hard to categorize. I feel like just calling him a blues singer is not at all going to prepare you for the song that I'm going to describe. He does a cover of I Put a Spell on You, and it's fantastic. It's so raucous and weird. And what happened is he went into the studio to record a pretty straightforward version of it with his band and they just kept getting drunker and drunker and finally they decided let's perform it in this really strange way and it's fantastic okay. i will send you the link okay. and i will try not to violate copyright and put like 10 seconds of it in the end of the the show so yeah right on I like, I like that yes, they have it screaming jay hawkins i put a spell on you i put a spell on you any last things you want to mention about the poem oh gosh i think we we got at it pretty well i i did want to track the places i this time so i didn't manage i managed not to cry right Mm -hmm. but i did notice the places where it started to happen (laughs) 
<laughs> it's not the first stanza, not the second, not the third. It's the emergence of the face. And I don't know if that'll be the case for everybody. But when I get to those lines by your face, the physical fact of your face, there is something inside my chest wall that says, uh-oh, <laughs> like we're crumbling now, inches from mine, smooth shaven, loving, alert. Well, the way the sentence slows down, we get these pauses that make us focus on these phrases that become so discreet. Yes. Inches from mine, smooth shaven, loving, alert. And then the next two sentences are fragments. It's mm -hmm. and you feel the speaker trying to hold it together. And maybe that's what's causing you to feel that well of emotion. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for diagnosing my issue because I can't <laughs> I can't figure out why it wrecks me so badly. And it does every time. And then the second instance is is also it's I think I think it is the way that face is intoned in the poem, right? Because it happened for me again. So when I saw your unguarded, reliable face, your unmistakable gaze opening all the warmth and clarity of you, it's it's the face and it's the you that just keep coming back and just you're haunted by that sound and the the a sound in the face. It's not like a like an like an overwrought o, but this mm -hmm. you know face grace. And then face, 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 gaze is like an aching in the poem yeah. for me, sound-wise. Yeah. And the rhythm and sound of the, that line after the break, after narrative, by your face, the physical fact of your face. There's mm -hmm. something in the rhythm of that and the F slash PH sounds and the fact that hard T before we get of your face. It's just, it's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes I just like to look at a poem and say, that's great. <laughs> All right, it is time for us to transition into the games. But first, we do have an ad, and our ad today comes from Taco Bell. As we all know, Taco Bell has supported the arts for many, many, many years, and they would like to reemphasize their support of the art of poetry. They invited a wide variety of poets to take part in this project. One is Mary Oliver who writes, what will you do with your one wild and precious life, Live Moss? Another is John Milton, who writes that to justify the ways of God to men, you have to think outside the bun. We have also, of course, Wallace Stevens' message, Notes Toward a Supreme Taco. And if you would like to support Taco Bell in its support of the arts, please visit your local Taco Bell today. As Ezra Pound says, you can order in the app, Arition of These Faces in the Crowd. Offer only valid in Estonia. <laughs> Your was, face says everything I need to know. That was the pinnacle. I think that's the pinnacle of your humor that that really just chef's kiss. That was awesome. Somehow the pinnacle of my humor is also rock bottom. It's <laughs> <laughs> So are you ready for a poetry game? No, I'm not. Let's go. <laughs> All right. Today we're playing a game I am calling Tell Us How You Really Feel, William Logan. Oh, and no. You mentioned before we started recording that you are not familiar with William Logan, so I will give a brief explanation and I will be as tactful as I can. William Logan is a poet, and I'm not especially familiar with his poems, but he's best known as a poetry book reviewer and has written many, many reviews. And he's known for his book reviews because they are often sharply negative oh. to the point that... I think it's fair to categorize a lot of them as hatchet jobs. 
And he seems to be doing this in part to bring poets whose reputations he doesn't agree with down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think there's also this idea that it makes his praise sound more sincere. And the frustrating thing is he can make very astute observations about poems. It's just in the reviews, and you'll hear this when we get to the questions, they get so wrapped up in looking for the way to stab and twist the knife and to draw attention to the review rather than the thing being reviewed. Mm-hmm. So. I'm going to read you excerpts from reviews, and I'm going to give you three poets. I'm going to ask you to tell me which poet he is writing about. There aren't going to be any giveaways, but, you know, it's it's a guessing game. If you do well on this, you avoid being dropped by William Logan into his pond of snooty alligators. But if you fail, you'll be dropped into his pond of snooty alligators. If I do poorly, that that reveals more about my thoughts about the poet, right, then? than his. Uh, We don't need to get that deeply into it. All right. Number one. (laughs) Blank's new poems fall easily into his resonant murmur, occasionally snoring or wheezing now, knitted in rhyme, falling often into quatrains, tightened into pentameter, and then unknotted again. At 80, the poet has every reason to survey his past, marking the toll paid in loss and regret, the dead loves and dead friends roughening the memory when he can recall their names. Whenever a poem starts to flag blank pastes in lush strips of Morris wallpaper, natural description. So deliriously gaudy, you forget it's pretty nonsense. Is the poet a Stanley Kunitz B Derek Walcott or C Seamus Heaney. Oh my goodness. Stanley Kunitz. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm afraid it is Derek Walcott. Really? Yes. This is a review of Derek Walcott's book, White Egrets. How? Okay. (laughs) Great question. Great question. This is the thing that happens with these reviews. And this has come up already on several episodes, but that there are a lot of book reviews where if you take out the names, it's nearly impossible to tell who they're about. Mm -hmm. And I'm deliberately choosing things where there are certain kinds of context cues, but That's a long passage that I don't, (laughs) I read that and I think, okay, all right. Yeah, okay. Number two, ah, the sorrows of blank, blank writer. Ah, the sorrows of blank, America's longest running soap for hair raising plot twists and hair's breath rescues and hair curling acting. You couldn't find better on the guiding light. Blank has pushed his sorry tale to the center of his poems in a way that makes old school confessionals like Lowell and Plath and Berryman seem sweetly out of date. He has drunk harder and drugged harder than any dozen poets in our health conscious age and paid the penalty in hospitals and mental wards. The surprise is that some of the new poems in his collection are tender considered pieces of work. Is this A, Franz Wright, B, W.S. Merwin, or C, Carl Phillips? Oh, hey, Franz Wright. Nicely done. Yes. I was for sure. Multiple choice. <laughs> yeah. The hardest thing was picking wrong answers for this. W.S. Merwin was a saint. That's true. And Carl Phillips seems, at least in my very, very passing interactions with him, seems like a very friendly person. And while his poems can touch on drama, they don't have any of the mm-hmm. d- drunk harder and drugged harder. Number three, blank must have been told that poems have musical language because at times he tries out a jingly phrase, quote, high in the chaffy, taffy-colored haze, end quote, 
He must have heard somewhere that poems use metaphors because he tosses a few in higgledy-piggledy, quote, those solemn Sunday sacraments of Clorox in the church of starch, end quote, or considering some refrigerated celery, quote, surely it misses those long fly balls of light its leaves once leapt to catch, end quote. Technique doesn't matter much to a poet whose versified prose, sometimes beaten out on a bongo drum, is used mainly to say something whimsical or twinkly. Is he writing about A, Gary Snyder, B, Ted Kuzer, or C, Charles Wright? Ted Kuzer. Nicely done, two in a row. I feel like maybe I I didn't do a, a convincing enough job picking alternates. I also feel like that's not fair at all to Ted Kuzer. No. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the 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 subtext of of all of these. They, so. they seem they seem unkind. They do. Number four, and I'll just go ahead and tell you, the first part of what I'm going to read you is not about the poet, but is kind of essential. I haven't cut anything out. This is a part that comes before the person naming the poet. Number four, to read a lot of criticism these days. You'd think the most important thing about a poet was his ethnic identity or sexual proclivities. And the most important thing about a poem was its ethnic identity or sexual proclivities. This is a recent notion as well as a bad one. But it isn't bad because who our ancestors were and whom we sleep with have no consequences. Here's a parenthetical. To treat people badly because their skin has a different hue or because they don't share our lusts or because they're lame, halt, or blind is a despicable way of behaving. It is also impolite. And close parentheses. The more you know. Uh, yes, exactly. The notion is bad because poems of identity offer only a narcissistic needle's eye view of the world. When poetry is used merely to build self-esteem, it's time to make Larkin required reading. Thank goodness Homer didn't go on about being blind and Ionian. Even so, Ryder Blank's book reminds us how important it is never to ignore the sins of the past or to pretend the past hasn't afflicted the present. Blank has a natural interest in the history of Blacks in America, a history she has labored in diverse. It's curious that it so often seems a labor. Is he writing about A, Natasha Trethewey, B, Nikki Finney, or C, Rita Dove? It seems a crime to name any of them. Yes, it does. <laughs> What was, the, what was option A? Option A was Natasha Trethewey. Labored and diverse. I'll say Trethewey. Oh, I'm sorry. It is Rita Dove. It is not Rita Wait. Dove. And it's not, no, Tre- it's it's not. not Trethewey. <laughs> it's not Nikki Finney either. No, and it's not at all reasonable. I, I just have to read the parenthetical again because this is <laughs> the sort of thing that right-wingers say right before they tell you that race science is real to treat people badly because their skin has a different hue or because they don't share our lusts or because they're lame halter blind is a despicable way of behaving it is also impolite it's like okay buddy let's (laughs) let's come back to the real world if we could all right number five i really want to take a class where that's on the syllabus it's like thank you for the reminder all right last one Mm -hmm. poet blank Mm -hmm has grabbed many of the brass rings an American poet could ever desire, but it's hard to imagine that half a century from now, her driven, repetitive, obsessive work will still captivate a large audience if poetry has any audience at all. Her work is prosy in the approved way. She stands naked before the reader, showing everything and revealing nothing. 
she knows little about suggestion, the strongest form of poetic intimacy. In her new book, she blathers through her life like a third-string reporter for the Oskaloosa Herald paid to write a sex diary instead of a fishing column. Julie, is he writing about A, Adrian Rich, B, Sharon Olds, or C, Diane Seuss? B, Seuss? Sharon Olds. It is B, Sharon Olds. I almost wanted to have you guess that one out without giving you names. <sighs> Well, if it makes you feel better, her name arose in my mind <laughs> as a suspicion. It's not that it's accurate, but you see everything there. It matches is... the caricature of her. Yes. And yes. you see the way that it, that one, it's like trying to shoot down somebody who has a big name, All many of the brass rings, uh, mm -hmm. the idea that there is this, that he is standing against some larger social approval. Her work is prosy in the the approved way. <laughs> it's just, mm -hmm. I will say that paid to write a sex diary instead of a fishing column is mildly clever, but is completely destroyed by the context. And that's, that's I think, the thing about this kind of hatchet job is he's trying mm -hmm. to be clever in a way. So the most he can ever do is come up with a turn of phrase that is cute or amusing and really tells you nothing. Yeah. What was his timeline in the review? 50 years. Yes. F 50 years mm -hmm. into the future. Can't imagine that anybody will yeah. be reading her. Well, I, I'd like to see the legacy on his as well. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's a good point. The only thing we know about 50 years from now is that we'll be caught between a fire and a flood at any given moment. The last thing I'll say about him, you know, the, there's the joke about the New Yorker cartoon that you can replace any of the captions with the phrase Christ with an asshole. I feel like that is William Logan. You can just put that as, <laughs> the, as that can be his little bio note. William Logan is a poet and poetry reviewer. Christ with an asshole. Or as we say in Philadelphia, he makes me want to punch a police horse. <laughs> oh, why does the horse have to suffer? <laughs> it doesn't. It's not a saying either. Oh. It's just it's just a thing Eagles fans do at the conclusion of a good game. That's yeah, that's true. That's true. Why why do they throw batteries at Santa Claus when they could have thrown batteries at William Logan? Note this is not an endorsement of violence against anybody, especially not William Logan. Anyway. Julie, thank you so much for doing this. Any last things you would like to say? Anything you would like to plug? I don't think so. This was great. I am so glad. It's probably the one time I'll say this. I'm so glad I chose William Logan. <laughs> I won't tell the listeners what the other uh, options were because they may be coming up as games on future episodes. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for listening. Go have a wonderful day. Read some poems, pet some dogs, and support striking workers wherever you might find them. Bye.